right, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of The Eclectic Highway. I'm thrilled to have my good friend Felix Leach as my first guest on the show. Now, I've personally known Felix for about three years. We met at the SAE conference in Capri in 2017, where I convinced him to hug one of the display engines. Now, since then, Felix has been a contributor on my Hug Your Engine website, and we co-authored a paper together late last year titled Diversity in Transportation, Why a Mix of Propulsion Technologies is the Way Forward for the Future Fleet. So as you can see, we both believe that the future is eclectic. But enough of me talking. Let's say hi to Felix and jump right into the interview. So Felix, for listeners who may not know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and what you're working on now? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's great to talk to you. Um, So uh, I'm an Associate Professor of Engineering Science at the University of Oxford in the UK. Um, I've had that role for just over a year now. um, And previously, I worked uh, in the Centre of Excellence for Combustion Research, uh, also at the University of Oxford as a postdoctoral student. Um, But I've been working in uh, combustion and emissions from combustion engines for just over a decade now. Okay, that's that's great. So how are you doing? I mean, this is this is a strange time for everybody. Uh, how are you doing and how has COVID-19 changed your life during these last few months? Uh, well, I suspect in common with everyone listening to this, it's changed it beyond all recognition. Here in the UK, we are now in our ninth week of lockdown. Uh, so it's been pretty intense spending so much time at home, uh, not really getting out. We're allowed out for about an hour of exercise per day and that's it. Uh, so it's been really uh, transformative, really, in terms of uh, lifestyle. Um, I've got to know my n- local neighbourhood uh, a lot better than I used to, which is actually really nice. Some of the right. neighbours much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's made uh, work and research in particular really, really challenging. You know, we don't have access to any of our labs. They're all locked down at the moment. Um, so initially I caught up on a bit of, uh, writing of papers that I'd fallen behind on, uh, but now they're all submitted, trying to sustain projects and so on without access to any of the research facilities is really, really difficult. Right. Right. And I imagine, like you said, because you're doing experiments, you do a lot of experiments that must be pretty tough right now because you don't have access to the labs, right? That's right. I wish I'd listened to you more when you said that I should get into modelling. And uh, if I had done, maybe my life would be a little bit different right now. But uh, yeah, because I mostly focus on experiments rather than modelling, it's really, really difficult to to do anything right now. Um, been working on a bit. So um, one of the projects we're going to talk about in a bit, um, I, I'm working on some air quality. I was supposed to have some air quality meters deployed all over Oxford. Uh, but instead they're deployed all over my house, measuring uh, indoor air pollution caused by me just going about my life at home, uh, cooking and, and hoovering and, and all the other things that I do at home. Oh, very interesting. And you know, if you want to get into modeling, it's never too late. Um, uh, yeah, I know. I, I know. It, it's it's almost tempting me now. I, I can hook you up with a license. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, well, and you kind of hit on this already, and, and let's get a little bit into sort of the meat of the questions now. And what I'm really interested in is talking about pollution levels and how they've been affected by COVID-19. So what differences have you noticed in pollution levels kind of before and after the economic slowdown from COVID-19? Sure. Well, so as I was mentioning just a second ago, in addition to working on um, combustion engines and their sort of performance and emissions, 
Um, I've also in the past two or three years been really focusing on what happens to those emissions once they leave the engine. Um, so looking at air pollution, how it moves through our environment. And uh, I was in the, actually in the middle of a project when the lockdown hit, we're deploying 18 air quality meters across uh, various locations in Oxford um, with the aim of measuring really localized air pollution. So before this project started, Oxford only had uh, three measurement stations in the whole city. Um, so we're, we're adding another 18 to those. Um, to really understand the local effects of air pollution. And I managed to deploy about five of those uh, 18 when the lockdown hit. And it's been really fascinating being able to see what the effect of, if, of removing so much traffic from the roads in Oxford has been. So I'm sure like where you are, um, the traffic levels in Oxford have fallen 90, 95% as people are being forced to stay at home. There's really only kind of essential traffic now, some deliveries and then, you know, ambulances, police cars, all that sort of thing going on and a few buses, but but nothing compared to, to normal. But what's been really interesting is everyone's been telling me, oh, the air is so clear, the pollution is down massively. And that's not always what the data is showing us. So for example, the highest levels of particulate pollution, so this is what we call PM10 and PM2.5. So these are particles smaller than 10 uh, microns in diameter and smaller than 2.5 microns in diameter, actually peaked on April the 8th, uh, which was about two weeks after the lockdown came to the UK. Um, but uh, the nitrogen dioxide pollution, so this is NO2, uh, is down quite substantially compared to before the lockdown, although it goes up and down. And so the only certainty really that I can say is that the monitors I have at the roadside, so right next to the traffic, are now behaving more like the background monitors. So these are the pollution detectors we have that are much further away from roads. The idea being that that is sort of what the pollution levels are once it's fully mixed in the atmosphere. Whereas, of course, the roadside pollution is very much dominated by traffic. So it's reassuring from a scientific perspective that the roadside levels are starting to match the background levels but the background levels are going up and down from other sources that aren't necessarily this road pollution caused by traffic. Right, right. Very, very interesting. Um, so what is what is the public perception around this, do you feel? So everyone thinks that pollution is reduced massively right now. Right. But I've been trying to understand why that is. Um, and I think, firstly, it's a mental thing, right? People associate cars and buses and, and road traffic as being the major source of pollution, which in most parts of the world is simply not true. So for example, in Oxford, um, PM 2.5, only 17% of that is from transportation and only 5% of the total. So about a third of that 17% is from the exhaust of road transportation. The others coming from, for example, tires, road abrasion and brakes. But I think one one or two things that have changed massively are the noise pollution. So obviously traffic has a lot of noise associated with it um, and also noise from aircraft and other things which have decreased massively. And I think a lot of people's perceptions of pollution are quite closely associated with the background noise that they're hearing and that has got much quieter. In addition, bird noise is now a much more prominent part and we perceive that noise as being natural as opposed to a sort of uh, traffic or, or other types of noise which are uh, man-made in, in, our, in our minds. And so if we perceive birds singing, for example, more, uh, then maybe we think that nature has taken over and so pollution must be lower. 
Uh, but in fact, one of the bir- reasons the birds are maybe singing more is it's springtime here in the UK, and so it's mating season for the birds as well. And you bet <laughs> they're singing more. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, very insightful. So you've hit on this a little bit already, but you know, how do we resolve these differences in the data that you talked about? And then I don't know about you, but on the internet now, on social media, you see all of these images of, you know, the clean air in cities, right? And how it looks significantly different from before COVID-19. So how do you resolve these differences? And what's your, what's your advice there? So I think we really need to define what we mean by the word pollution. Pollution means different things to different people. So for example, um, ozone is a pollutant. Uh, I've already mentioned NO2, nitrogen dioxide. Particulates, uh, both sort of smaller ones and larger ones. Carbon monoxide, ammonia, all of these things we consider pollution. And that's before we even talk about things like noise or um, other types of pollution like you know CO2, sort of more greenhouse pollution, but it's still pollution in many people's minds. So until we can be slightly more specific about what pollutants we're talking about, I think it's very, very difficult to make blanket statements. Um, so I've, like you've seen those images um, from India, uh, where, for example, you can see the Himalayas much more clearly than, than was previously possible. And right. no doubt a lot of that is because of a reduction in pollution, uh, particularly particulate pollution. But we must remember that India in particular is one of the most polluted or has some of the most polluted cities in the world. Delhi is a, a notorious pollution hotspot. And applying something that's true in Delhi to our own local context is unlikely to be that valid. We need to look at the data um, that exists. Certainly in Europe, there's very good um, pollution data for a lot of pollutants um, from sites ar- around Europe and actually understand what's going on because there are so many different pollutants. Some are falling, some are going up, some are caused by transportation, some are caused by other things. You know, I mentioned that some of the largest levels of particulate pollution we'd seen in the UK happened on April the 8th. Well, some of that was associated with people burning more garden waste because people were spending more time at home. It was quite cold, so there were wood-burning stoves um, being used. Um, So other sources of combustion go on, but also uh, it's springtime. So farmers are spreading um, manure and fertilizer on their fields. That can actually add to the nitrogen pollution in the atmosphere quite considerably, and certainly the ammonia pollution as well. So there's so many different sources. And one of the things I've learned in the past two or three years of of studying this is it's incredibly complex. And you start to mix in sources of pollution, but also how they move through the atmosphere. And that can both be governed by things like the weather, uh, but also, um, uh, you know, more local effects uh, around uh, turbulence and so on. And so trying to piece that all together is is such a big challenge. And one of the reasons we've had high pollution here in the UK recently is because the weather has been really unusual. We've had the slowest winds um, really on record. Um, And of course, when we get storms and windy weather, that really disperses pollution very effectively. So the fact that we've had high pollution, despite a a lockdown and a reduction in economic activity, um, can be associated with the weather as much as anything else. And that's not really something that any of us can control. But because of this complexity, the project I'm, I'm working on at the moment, it's called Ox Aria, and Aria is the, the Latin word for air. So it's, it's about the sort of the air that we're breathing here in Oxford. And it's, um, I'm working on it in collaboration with a, a public health uh, clinician from the University of Birmingham and a, an air pollution expert, a consultant uh, from Harwell, which is just south of Oxford. 
And um, having the three of us, you know, myself with a background in emissions, an air quality and an air pollution expert and a, a, a medical doctor, it's been really powerful to try and get to the bottom of some of these um, trends and some of this complexity, because what it means is that uh, we can start to understand not only the emissions, but how these emissions ultimately travel through the atmosphere and affect people's health, which is, of course, the reason that we all started doing this in the first place. None of us want to have our lives shortened by pollution or to breathe dirty air. And so having that kind of complete package, I think, is really powerful. And, and I've not seen that done too much before. Yeah, that's extremely powerful. I'm really looking forward to see what, what you guys come up with there. Um, <clears throat> so what might the future hold post-COVID-19 in both the long and short term? What, In your opinion, what does the future of mobility look like? Oh, that's such a, a big and complex question. You know, asking anyone to predict the future, you can only guarantee that uh, whatever happens won't be what you predicted. I think in the short term, well, you know, inevitably people are still going to drive the cars that they have um, and, uh, you know, no one can change their vehicle during lockdown. So I think in the short term, it won't return to business as usual because, of course, I am expecting economic activity to be curtailed even when uh, lockdown is lifted, certainly here in the UK. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that in the short term, people have understood a little bit more about their their local area. Maybe some of the journeys they were taking before might not be so necessary. So I think some people will travel a bit less. Um, you know, video calling has certainly uh, taken off. Um, and so maybe some of the journeys that people were having to make to the office all the time uh, won't have to happen as much in the future. Um, we may see more flexible working and that will reduce traffic, which will be to absolutely everyone's benefit. In the longer term, I think there will be some drastic changes because of COVID-19. Um, you know, we're just looking at the airline industry and the uh, extraordinary changes they're going through both in Europe and in the US, you know, airlines declaring bankruptcy already, having to have huge uh, bailouts from the government, and no one is expecting air transportation to return to, to pre-COVID levels anytime soon. And of course, that will have knock-on effects um, around other forms of travel. Um, I've noticed here in the UK, a lot more people um, walking and bicycling. Clearly, that's true at the moment because they can't use their cars to go anywhere. But I wonder if it may sustain partially into the longer term as well. And certainly in Oxford, where I live, it's a city you can't really drive in because the roads are so narrow. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, a lot of people already uh, travel around by bicycle. And I imagine I will see that trend continuing. Um, in terms of the future of mobility, I think we live in a really exciting time. There's so many different options, um, you know, high efficiency internal combustion engines, uh, battery electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles seem to be making a bit of a resurgence at the moment as well. All of these things mean that for what I've known for all of my life, you know, cars, so passenger transportation, really being in either a gasoline or a diesel vehicle, and that's really your only choice, um, it's going to look so much more diverse than that. And that, I think, brings all sorts of really exciting options. Um, battery electric vehicles will, I think, become mainstream over the next 15 to 20 years, particularly for shorter journeys. Um, but I think hybrids are going to play a really, really important role. Um, what I'm really interested in is ways that we can use hybrid vehicles and the technology that's in them, um, not only to reduce emissions, but also in ways that perhaps we couldn't have used other types of vehicles. So if you have a plug-in hybrid vehicle, for example, 
Um, you know, here in the UK, we have a lot of what's called clean air zones or low emission zones. So uh, we've had them in London since 2008 um, and in Oxford since 2014. And you could easily imagine a scenario where a hybrid could be geofenced. So the GPS in the vehicle, uh, just like in your phone, uh, knows where the vehicle is and can just switch off the engine when it's inside a clean air zone in a city. So that then uh, vehicles in cities, which are typically quite small, you know, even a city the size of London, you know, 20 miles to drive all the way across it, 25 miles maybe, that's easily doable with a very small battery in the vehicle. Um, you could have a scenario where the, the vehicle knew where it was and so could switch off the engine inside these clean air zones. But then when you needed the range, you needed that extraordinary uh, energy density that liquid fuels offer um, and the flexibility that they offer and the fast recharge time that a liquid fuel offers, that you could exploit that when you're outside of these clean air zones, whilst having a small amount of battery electric power to drive uh, through through city centres where maybe pollution is more of a concern. Definitely, definitely. You and I both both agree on that. And I think I think it's fair to say that we both agree that the future is eclectic. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was saying so just now. And I think this eclecticism, and I, I think it's great, you know, the future is electric. No, the future is eclectic. But this diversity that we will see in future transportation, it's really exciting. It's going to offer up a whole bunch of new opportunities, not only for research for people like me, but also for, for consumers. You know, you're going to be able to buy a vehicle or maybe even a transportation solution that's much more tailored to your needs um, rather than being forced into, you know, four wheels and a combustion engine, which you may have been you know, your only option even five or 10 years ago. Right, right. So circling back to the COVID-19 um, issue at hand here, some people who believe that an all-electric future, right, they, they believe that's the answer, and they're actually using COVID-19 and some of the things we discussed earlier with, you know, images of clean cities and things like that. They're using this to help support their case. So what would you say to them? So I think... Anyone can skew a scenario like this to prove their point of view. And, and, and we've seen lots of that on social media. And I don't just mean around transportation, but around political um, preferences and all sorts of other things. Uh, so I think exploiting any situation like this um, is, can be really beneficial to show people what an alternative would look like. But I think one of the things I've found really interesting in my own work recently has been this is an amazing natural experiment. You know, if we take effectively 95% of the vehicles off the roads, this is the levels of pollution that we can expect. And actually, yes, we've seen big changes in pollution, but we've also seen some very high levels of pollution that aren't caused by transportation at all. So what I would say to those people is even if every vehicle on the roads tomorrow was battery electric and had 300 miles of range and cost the same as a petrol equivalence day, none of which is true, by the way, we would still have seen some very high pollution events, certainly in the UK in the last month, that are nothing to do with transportation. But I think this relentless focus on one issue can be really, really damaging. You know, whether it's battery electric vehicles or one particular pollutant or whatever it may be, Inevitably, if you focus too hard in one area, you see a real uh, kind of swing in another direction or an unintended consequence, you might say. And, you know, just to give an example in the UK, um, about 15, 20 years ago, we were really concerned about particulate pollution. And rightly so. Particulate pollution typically has the greatest effect on people's health. 
um, particularly in terms of, of shortening lives. And so in 2008, a low emission zone came in London that was mostly focused on trucks and buses, and it was about their particulate emissions, but didn't focus on any other pollutants like carbon monoxide, or in particular, NOx. So this is oxides of nitrogen. So sure enough, following Dieselgate in 2015 and all of these other scandals uh, that were, you know, I, I would want to clarify, rightly uh, scandals, you know, no one here is endorsing what Volkswagen did. It was, it was illegal um, and immoral. But there was a huge focus, certainly in Europe, on, on NOx pollution. And the low emission zone that came to London in 2019 is hugely focused on NOx. And that has a number of unintended consequences, not least around other pollutants, such as particulates, but also around we've seen CO2 emissions from the European vehicle fleet climbing in the last two or three years as people have moved away from diesels, which are typically lower emitting in terms of CO2, but higher emitting in terms of NOx. So that's just one example of what happens when we focus too much on one thing. And so what I would say to the uh, sort of all electric um, uh, pioneers, if you like, is, yeah, your technology is great. I love driving electric cars. The few that I've driven are awesome. But they're not the solution to everything. And I think we need to embrace the best aspects of all technology and this diversity, this eclecticism, and say the future is going to be eclectic in order to exploit the benefits of all of these technologies and adopt technology neutral approaches so that we can get the best bits of each of these technologies rather than just promoting one technology, which in my opinion is inevitably gonna to lead to something else getting worse somewhere else. Very, very true. Uh, I like it. Thank you very much for that insight. Um, that was great. So <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of our audience will appreciate what you what you just summarized and I think I think you hit on a lot of the really big points, um, things like unintended consequences, for example, and there isn't really a one-size-fits-all solution for everything and everybody. Um, so making use of all of these technologies collectively um, and use them where, they're, where they fit the best, I think that, that's the way to go. So thank you very much for those uh, insights. That was, that was great. Now let's talk a little bit about future for you. Um, do you have any projects coming up uh, in the future that our listeners might be interested in learning about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a lot of things going on in the group in Oxford. Uh, we're a, a growing group and, and it's a really exciting time. Um, so we've got projects working on very high efficiency combustion engines. Uh, so not only uh, thinking about uh, the combustion itself, but also the emissions from that combustion and some really exciting new technologies that we're trialling, mostly on our single cylinder research engines uh, here in Oxford. Um, also, uh, I've got this uh, air pollution project, which is currently sort of suspended due to COVID-19, but that's given me an opportunity to um, do this indoor air quality measurement. And I think this is a really big area that much more people should be interested in because um, indoors in our houses, you know, we've got gas boilers, gas um, stoves here in the UK. Um, that is effectively uncontrolled uh, emissions from that combustion. And the initial results I've been seeing show that the pollution inside my house, which when I've got the windows closed when it's cold outside, is much, much worse than the pollution outdoors. And so, again, adopting this holistic approach, you know, this project came about because of an accident, because of COVID-19. I couldn't deploy my air quality sensors, so I've put them around my house. But understanding what the pollution in our houses is doing, because I certainly spend more of my day indoors than outdoors because of the nature of my job, um, and I imagine most people do the same. So I think we need to focus on our own personal exposure to air pollution. And that's really where, where this project is leading. 
because even if the pollution outside is nice and clean, um, the indoor pollution caused by you know gas stoves. I don't have one, but a lot of my um, friends do. You know these wood burning stoves. Um, again, the pollution from those can be really quite high. And if we're operating effectively in a sealed chamber of our house because it's cold out, we need to think about that. So, you know, we've got the um, sort of combustion and emissions projects. Uh, I'm developing some air quality projects. I'm also really interested in future fuels. You know, we all acknowledge that. Uh, the fuels of the future are not necessarily going to come from oil um, as they have been over the last, say, 100 years. But what those fuels would be. So I've got uh, students working on uh, both kind of big uh, sort of almost meta analyses of what the future might be. Uh, there are fuels that don't contain carbon at all, such as ammonia or, or just pure hydrogen. These have all got their advantages and disadvantages. And so it's about understanding how these fuels could be used. Is a combustion engine the best use for them? I, in many cases, the answer to that is yes, but not always. Um, how these fuels can be used to get us to a, a more sustainable um, transportation future. Definitely. And and back to your, your uh, project on where you're measuring your emissions levels indoors. I find that very fascinating. And I remember seeing an article not uh, maybe a few months ago where it was very counterintuitive, right? It was it was some city, some major city, I forget which one, where there's a lot of traffic and you'd expect a lot of you know, pollution and things like that from vehicles. And they had, a, they had a guy in an apartment and they were saying, this guy, it's better off for him to open his window than not because of the pollution that's occurring inside of his apartment versus even what's going on outside with all of the traffic and stuff like that. So it was very, very counterintuitive, but, but I'm really, really interested to see what you come up with there from, from that data. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I could, I could believe it. You know, if you think about the, um, the kind of emissions technology that's on the back of a modern vehicle, you know, they're effectively carrying around a chemical factory with the, the catalysts, the particulate filters that are on many vehicles today. None of those technologies are on any of the emission sources in my house. Right. In fact, there are uh, there's data showing that in some cities you, you drive a car and you're actually cleaning the air. Right. That's that's right. Yeah. Uh, not typically in Europe or the US. So that's for incredibly polluted cities like like Delhi, for example. But but yeah, that's right. Right, right, right. OK, awesome. Um, let's end on a lighter note here. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, but I think our audience would would be interested to hear about one fun fact about you, something that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have heard about you or know about you. Is there something you can share with the audience? Sure. So uh Outside of my work, my main passion is flying. Um, I've had a pilot's license since I was, I think, 20 years old. Um, and I really, really am really passionate about aviation as well. Um, I, I love the freedom that, that fl flying my own aircraft gives me. Um, it's just this most incredible feeling and the views you get. You know, it's always sunny above the clouds. And that's a really, really exciting thing, where, particularly in, in the UK, where it's cloudy and rainy for, you know, seven months of the winter. So being able to get on top of those clouds and see some sunshine is just the most amazing feeling. Very, very cool. Very cool. Hopefully you'll be able to fly again soon. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I bet. I bet. This has been awesome, Felix. Um, really appreciate it. You're always very uh, fun to talk to. You always have a ton of insight. I really appreciate all of your input. And thank you for doing this podcast, uh, for being my first guest. I think this has been a great show. I think I think our audience will really appreciate this. And I hope I hope we can see each other in person sometime in the near future. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Kelly. As you know, we were supposed to meet up quite recently at the now cancelled Congress in Detroit. So yeah, I'm delighted to be your first guest. Um, really looking forward to the future episodes of this great initiative. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And we'll uh, hug engines together soon. I can't wait. All right, so what did you guys think? If you want to leave feedback for this very episode, check out the link to the LinkedIn thread in the show notes, where we can have a discussion of this show's content. And please also follow us on social media. At Twitter, you can find us at Eclectic Highway, Instagram at The Eclectic Highway, and LinkedIn, Peter Kelly Senecal. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. It's now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can grab the RSS feed at eclectichighway.com. Remember, guys, the future is eclectic. Mm-hmm.